Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 8 and see if there's evidence there that we have a great intercessor for us in the presence of God. Was he able to take care of this woman? He's able to take care of this woman purely on legal logic. He's able to take care of us based on an entirely different foundation, and that is his own death on the cross of Calvary. He did not take care of this woman on that basis. He took care of the woman on their own law and their consciences. But he'll take care of us in the great day of judgment by his own death. John chapter 8. If we have to come back to some of this next Lord's Day, we'll do it. I, don't, I just want to get through the passage quickly and hope that we can see several wonderful things here for our prophet. I read it in the first service. Let's go after it now in the second service. Verse 1. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. The last verse of John chapter 7 tells us that the Pharisees and the scribes went unto their own homes after the conference there on the last great day of the feast in which Jesus announced the arrival of the Spirit to take place in the day of Pentecost. But then Jesus went to the Mount of Olives where he was wont to resort from time to time. Chief priests went to their homes. He went to his place in the Mount of Olives to stay. The Mount of Olives was only a mile or two outside the city of Jerusalem. We find him there at other times as well. We don't know if he spent the night there, how he spent the night there, but he did tell us in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 20 that foxes of the field have, have places for them to lay their heads, but not the Son of Man. So he may well have spent his time in the Mount of Olives without a home. Verse 2, And early in the morning he came again into the temple where he had been the previous day, as John chapter 7 describes it, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them early in the morning. Our Lord did not hit the snooze button very often because he had to be about his father's business. We want to follow his holy example of great zeal for the kingdom of God. We should have a mutual eagerness here, and there is, there is a mutual eagerness there in that second verse, comparable to Ezra in Nehemiah chapter 8, when the whole city gathered together to hear the word of God read to them. And so it is here. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, but he wasn't alone, and all the people came unto him. He came to the temple from the Mount of Olives. The temple was the house of God. We've described five houses of God in the Bible. This is temple number four, and we have temple number five. All the people came unto him. Should we, like Arminians, assume that this is all the people in world history, since it says all the people came unto him? Or do we understand that context severely limits it? We understand all the people to be limited to those in Jerusalem at this time. We further understand all the people to be limited to those willing to hear Jesus preach. We further understand all the people cannot include scribes and Pharisees that were not there yet, but showed up on the scene shortly just by reading the context. And he sat down. The liberty of preaching in different ways should help us not worship tradition. The Bible is so silent about how we conduct church services, allowing us great liberty. The only pulpit in the Bible was a platform for Ezra to stand on. And he taught them. Jesus healed. Jesus multiplied lunches. Jesus calmed storms. But he primarily taught before he died. A great part of New Testament religion is understanding truth, and it's to be conveyed by public teaching, which is also called preaching. And so we have 
Verse 2. Verse 3. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that we should, that she, that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? Verse 3. Scribes and Pharisees. Scribes were in employment profession to maintain and explain the law, also called lawyers. You will find them throughout the pages of the New Testament. Herod gathered scribes to find out the Lord's birthplace. The scribes were teachers, but the people found Jesus to be superior because they said they had never heard preaching with authority like him. He was unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. It was scribes that interpreted and applied scripture about Elijah incorrectly that Jesus refers to in Matthew 17. Jesus gave scribes authority from Moses and they were to be obeyed as far as they agreed with the word of God. As teachers of scripture, they hindered men and fleeced men. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 13, the scribes wouldn't go into the kingdom of God and they hindered those people that were trying to go into the kingdom of God. Verse 14, they made long prayers for a pretense so they could devour widows' houses. That means take the last bit of money that a widow has, take her assets that her husband left her with in the name of false religion. Pharisees were the straightest, most conservative of the Jews' sex. The Pharisees were a constant thorn in the side of Jesus. They bring him a woman taken in adultery. Consider the event of bringing a woman taken in adultery and bringing her into a public forum. There's a crowd there to hear him preach. Jesus is preaching. His apostles are likely there. The scribes and Pharisees arrive and throw this woman before the Lord. Whether she was clothed or not, we don't know. She was caught in the very act. The way that they're acting, they they had no care for her whatsoever. They did not care about her. They did not care about the law. They did not care about righteousness. They wanted to trap Jesus. The passage tells us that. Since adultery, the very act of it, is intercourse, was she clothed or not here, or did she have a bedsheet wrapped around her? Many questions arise as to what woman, Catholics say her name was Susanna, what kind of woman, Catholics say she ended up a saint in the land of Spain. But you don't care about any of that, neither do I, because if we add to the words of God, he'll reprove us and we'll be found a liar. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 6. Many questions, though, pop up. Was she hired? What kind of a woman was she? Was she a prostitute? Was she seduced into this awkward situation? Was she a believer? Was she one of the followers of Christ that wasn't there this morning with him? Was she one of their wives? What man? They caught her in the very act. Where was the man? What man was with her? What man was joined to her? Where was the man? Was the man one of them? I have read some wildly interesting things, and I could speculate and entertain you about this woman, about her condition, about her husband, her lack of a husband here, the other adulterer, that she was one of the followers of the Lord because they wanted to really take advantage of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the man was one of them, that they had no qualms about doing something like this in order to get the Lord Jesus Christ. But we don't know those things, and so they're not important. We're going to limit ourselves. This is one of the places where you're tempted to go beyond Scripture and add to the words of God and speculate about it. But we don't do that. We do not do that. We will not do that. Don't ever let that happen in this church, no matter who's in this pulpit. 
let us stick to the words of God and what he gave us. Since we trust the mind and will of God and his every word, we go no further. We don't believe the Catholics saying that she was Susanna, spouse to an old decrepit man named Manasseh, and she died a saint in Spain where she had followed James. Interesting. Totally worthless. And when they had set her in the midst, they truly did not care about the woman. They didn't care about righteousness. They didn't care about the law of Moses. This woman was their pawn, thus no man, to see if they could take the king down. She was a pawn to see if they could take the king down. Wrong. The king took them down, and he did it masterfully. They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. They say unto him, Master, flattering titles may ruin men by praise, but not the Lord Jesus Christ. Proverbs chapter 27 and 21, that a refined praise to a man is like a refining fire and it indicates his character, how well you respond to praise. Because you ought not to accept flattering titles, nor give flattering titles, nor let them puff you up. Elihu said in Job chapter 32, if I were to use flattering titles, my maker would soon take me away. They used flattering titles in the Lord. They did not consider him their master or rabbi. Master or rabbi was a title that Jesus condemned along with calling men father in a religious or spiritual sense in Matthew 23, 5 through 12. So, our church, we avoid all such titles as reverend or father, like the Catholics embrace, and even pastor. I don't want to be addressed as Pastor Crosby because it starts to become a title like Master, Master Crosby, Rabbi Crosby, or Pastor Crosby, Or why not Reverend Crosby or Dr. This or That? In a spiritual sense, no. So we don't do that. I'm Brother Jonathan to the adults, Brother Crosby to the children. Brother, brother, brother. Because Jesus told them when he condemned these titles that you're all going to be each other's brothers. When Peter referred to Paul, he referred to him as our beloved brother Paul. And so we've got this little warning right here about these flattering men calling Jesus master and not meaning it. We do not reject titles in other roles, but we reject them in spiritual roles. We do not reject them in personal roles of affection between one man to a younger man calling father, son, because it's not meant spiritually, it's meant personally. We don't, we don't bother, we're not troubled by calling your doctor, doctor. When you go to your doctor, call him doctor, please. He may not be your beloved brother. So call him doctor. Their allegiance was not to Moses or to his law, but rather their jobs. In three chapters, we're going to learn about these men in John chapter 11 and verse 48, that if they don't get rid of Jesus, the Romans are going to come and take away their place and their temple, their place, their job, their role. And it says that in just three chapters, we'll learn it. But I'm, we're jumping ahead and I'm telling you that. Wise men learn very quickly to discern whether a man wants to learn or not. These men didn't want to learn. Men that do not want to learn are always fools and they may be scorners. Fools and scorners are to be rejected, for they waste time and they're dangerous. Solomon, Jesus, and Paul warned about fools and scorners. Ministers are not to waste their time on them. I always am ranking my time in and out of the church and prioritizing it. I want to help those that want to do something in the way of following Christ. I don't care about anybody else. If you don't want to follow Christ and make your life better and conform it to God's word, I don't have time for you. My life is running out. 
And the Bible warns me about not accepting your questions, not getting into your striving about little dinky problems that you think you have. I care about those that want to follow the Lord. And Jesus was the same way. Solomon taught the same thing. Paul taught the same thing. Foolish and unlearned questions avoid knowing that they gender strife. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't give that which is holy to dogs, lest they turn and rend you. Proverbs, I mean, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 6. And so this word master sets us off on thinking about some of these points that we know from the rest of Scripture. This woman was taken in adultery. Adultery is sexual intercourse or by extension other sexual intimate acts reserved for spouses in which one or both of the persons is married to another. It's a violation of the marriage bed one way or another. Therefore, either the woman was married or the man was married or both. In the very act, the language here means they took the woman during intercourse with a man. How convenient that they happened on such a thing while going to Jesus. Not. They made it happen. Thus, no man. If it had been a lowly man, why wouldn't they have brought them both? If it was one of them, it makes sense why they didn't bring him. But we don't know the details. Just think about it yourself as to why they brought the woman without the man. And then think about the scribes since then that have taken these verses out of the scripture according to the testimony of Augustine and the testimony of others because they did not want to give even the implied laxness to women to commit adultery. Did Jesus ever address this generation as an adulterous generation? Over and over again. Moses in the law commanded us. Look at Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10. Yes, Moses commanded that adultery was a capital crime and was to be punished with death. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10. Leviticus 20, 10, And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife... Even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. It starts out with the man, but there's no man here. It's just the woman. Leviticus 20 and verse 10. Could Jesus have written Leviticus 20 and verse 10 on the stone of the temple floor in its dust? Sure he could have. He could have written John 3.16 before it was in your Bible. He could have written the way to Nazareth. I do not. Lord, I thank you. I don't care about what he wrote on the ground. Why do you care what he wrote on the ground since he didn't care enough to tell you? Do you know that he doesn't care what he wrote on the ground? Or the Holy Spirit would tell us. So I don't care. And I just, I've had to, I've read so much in the past couple of weeks about what he wrote on the ground. He wrote a commentary of the law of Moses on the ground. But there's a great verse, Leviticus 20 and verse 10. Let's look at Deuteronomy 22. Many men make a big deal about the fact that they can't find a verse that says specifically that adulterers were to be stoned. And so they go off and talk about them being in error and testing Jesus on this point. I don't buy any of that. Watch. You just said death over there in Leviticus 20 and verse 10. It didn't say how, did it? But what was the traditional or typical way of putting them to death? Stoning. Deuteronomy chapter 22. Let's start at verse 21. Then they shall bring out the damsel 
This is a damsel that is later found out not to be a virgin when she got married. Virginity is very important in the Bible. Young girls, you have a great thing that God considers very valuable when you're a virgin. If you were discovered even after you were married, 10 years later, your husband gets upset at you and says you weren't a virgin when he married you, if your parents couldn't produce the proof of your virginity, this is what happens. Then they shall bring out the damsel to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her with stones that she die. Because she hath wrought folly in Israel to play the whore in her father's house, so shalt thou put evil away from among you. Virginity was to be exalted. This dramatically. Even later. Years later. Verse 22. If a man be found lying with a woman, married to an husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman. The woman and the man. So shalt thou put away evil from Israel. If a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed unto an husband, and a man find her in the city and lie with her, then ye shall bring them both out unto the gate of that city, and ye shall stone them with stones that they die. The damsel, because she cried not, being in the city, and the man, because he hath humbled his neighbor's wife, so, shall, so thou shalt put away evil from among you. There's stoning in verse 24 of a crime of adultery with a betrothed person. There's stoning in verse 21 of a married woman later being found out that she wasn't a virgin. And then in verses, verse 22, we have a man and a wife committing adultery. If a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband, and it doesn't say how they died. Well, when I read a passage like that, knowing that the traditional way of death of capital for capital punishment in Israel was stoning, and I've got stoning in verse 21, I've got stoning in verse 24, why in the world do I need stoning in verse 22? So I don't, try, I don't fault these men in John chapter 8 by saying Moses commanded that we stone a woman like this. She could have been betrothed. Do you want to take that course? I don't care. It doesn't say. Because it was considered adultery. Even if she was betrothed because she was committed to a man already. We're in verse 5 of John chapter 8. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? Oh, they loved wisdom from the Lord Jesus Christ, didn't they? They wanted to subject everything, including Moses' law, to Jesus. No, no, no. They wanted to trap him, and it tells us so in verse 6. This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. Here was their options. If Jesus had her stoned by the crowd that was there, they would report him to the Romans, which had taken out of the hands of the Jews the right to commit capital punishment. That is given to us in John 18, verse 31, that we're going to run into. If Jesus had forgiven her, they would have accused him against Moses. If Jesus had turned her over to the Romans, they would accuse him of being a traitor because he was, not, he was turning them over to a foreign power that they disrespected there in their nation. Though Rome did not have laws of capital punishment for adultery at this time. If all else failed, Jesus deciding a case judicially, not theoretically, was a crime. He didn't have authority to make such a judgment. Jesus had befriended sinners so they might corrupt mercy in this case. He had befriended sinners and they'd accused him of that in the past. And here, if he'd have tried to be severe with her, they would have accused, they would 
have appealed to that previous mercy and they would have charged him with hypocrisy. If Jesus had judged severely, they could have accused him of hypocrisy because he said, the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you scribes and Pharisees. So they had all these different options. They were just waiting for his answer. They wanted him to say something. And when he says something, they wished he hadn't said it. But they want him to say something. And this is your Lord. And, And how does this lead us to the Lord's Supper? I want you to think about how easily, how quickly, how authoritatively he delivered this woman out of these monsters' hands. And he has delivered us from a monster accuser, and that is the devil himself, who has already been thrown out of heaven. And so that Paul could write in Romans chapter 8, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. And he is living right now at the right hand of God, pleading our case and shall never lose a single one of us. If he was able to do this so easily on the grounds of the technicalities of Moses' law, how easily can he deliver us on the solid foundation and overwhelming evidence of his own death on the cross of Calvary that his father sent him to? That's where we're headed. I just don't know if we're going to get there today. This is painful. We're going to come back to this. Um, 1 through 11 next Sunday as well. Let's just quickly see what we have here. I'm, I'm having to adjust. I have many, many pages up here. What sayest thou? I just gave you a number of ways that they could have trapped Jesus. This was no different than Caesar's tribute. When they came to Jesus and said, is it lawful for us to pay tribute? They didn't really care about the law. They just wanted to get Jesus one way or another between a rock and a hard place and trap him. It is important to understand their wicked intentions and our Lord's perfect knowledge and understanding of it. They were not asking about the law, about his opinion of the law, so forget a lesson. Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but rather to fulfill it, and he did fulfill it. He confirmed it. He did not go against Moses. In fact, he told them to stone her. He just told them to do it the right way. You need a righteous man to throw the first one. He told them to stone her. It's it's beautiful. They wanted that crowd to stone her. They wanted Jesus to stone her. He turned it back after he had played on the ground for a while and turned it back on them, and they did not like that. Then they're going to be turned over to the Romans. Then they're going to go against Moses. Do you understand? He put it back on them. He is brilliant. The Lord Jesus Christ has in him hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3. Verse 6, this they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. And I've already been over that, all the ways they could have accused him. Luke records their desperate, diabolical desire to accuse him. I want you to see these verses in Luke chapter 11. Verses 53 and 54 are weighty in the way they describe the scribes and the Pharisees and how they wanted Jesus to speak. Because he stoops down and ignores them. He stoops down and writes with his finger on the ground as though he had not heard them, ignoring them, showing that he had no interest in making a judicial decision about an actual woman in front of him. He would debate the law of Moses because his preaching on the Sermon on the Mount was debating the law of Moses and defending it against the rabbinical learning of the Jews. He would debate things, but he wasn't going to judicially judge this woman. 
Do you remember the places elsewhere in the Bible? I believe it's Luke 12, where Jesus said, Men, why are you bringing this issue about your estate being settled to me? It's, I'm, that's not my place. I don't make decisions like that. And this, it's true here as well. But he's going to take care of them a little stronger than just telling them that. Luke 11, verse 53. And as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things, laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. Those two verses make me boiling angry about scribes and Pharisees, seminary-trained preachers and pastors, the ministerial association of the city, the textual critics, the scholars at the local university, criticizing the Lord Jesus Christ and urging him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things, laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might have to accuse him. I hope that we'll be able to recognize things like that and pass on by them in the future whenever they're thrown toward us. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. Instead of answering them with one of several options, he ignored them. He showed very clearly his avoidance of any role as judge in such matters. He took away their eager anticipation of an answer by which to accuse him. Everybody wants to know what he wrote. The Bible doesn't tell us what he wrote, so we don't worry about what he wrote. And then our Bible says, as though he heard them not. And those six words are in italics. But thankfully, in the first service, I said enough. We believe these words as much as we believe any words in the passage. Why they put them in? They had Greek manuscripts for them, but it wasn't in the main manuscript that they were using. And so in their honesty, they put it in italics. But we believe their honesty in the word am in Exodus 3, 6. We believe their honesty in the words the brother of in 2 Samuel 21, 19. I totally disagree with Arthur W. Pink in his rules for interpreting the scripture. One of them being the first thing you do is ignore all words in italics. I'd like to see him meet up with the Lord Jesus Christ who took apart the Sadducees with an italicized word in a King James Bible. Verse 7. So when they continued asking him, remember Luke 11, vehemently urging him, pressing him, they want him to say something because they think they have him on the horn of a dilemma that he cannot get off. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. He lifted himself up and finally said something to them because he's ignored them so far. The target of his words, among you. He that is without sin among you. He completely segregated the crowd that was there to hear him teach. He focused on these accusers that were there. He that is among you without sin. There is no man without sin in general, and they knew it as well as we know it, as well as Jesus intended it. He's talking about legal sin in the matter of, a, of witnessing against a person, person for a capital crime and capital punishment. And we could go back and look at the texts of Scripture that are there in the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Exodus that are very careful about the witnesses that come forward. Right. The witnesses that witness against a person are the first ones to lay their hands on them and the first ones to throw a stone. Right. So Jesus is defending Moses but turning the whole situation back on them. 
There's no man. Do not ever let anyone take John chapter 8 and verse 7 and the words, he that is without sin among you, and take away the authority of every office God has given men to execute judgment where God has called for judgment regardless of their life. Their life does not determine their judgment. God's word determines their judgment. Our magistrates are not perfect. Our judges are not perfect. Our sheriffs are not perfect. Yet we, they should execute the sword, and they bear not the sword in vain like Ohio proved recently by taking a man's life. Do you know how this passage has been abused? He that is without... You try to have church judgment in some church. A pastor gets his courage up to have church judgment, and someone stands up and said, says, He that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. That is entirely out of context. This is Moses' law. There are men there accusing her of a capital crime, and Jesus is saying, where is the witness that is going to be to throw the first stone, and is that witness as righteous as Moses expected them to be? Because if they are not as righteous as Moses expected them to be, then they should get the same punishment that they are trying to give the girl. This is all clearly stated in the Old Testament. Jesus threw it right back on them, and then he stooped right back down and played with the ground again with his finger. I don't know what he wrote. I don't know what he wrote the second time. I don't know what he wrote the first time. And I don't know what he wrote in those two testaments, if you want to think that, that he wrote there on the ground. It's of great importance that you grasp the Lord's words within this context. This is not a discussion of original sin, total depravity, practical sin, or any related subject. This is a legal issue. He that is without sin, let him come forth and be the righteous executioner and throw the first stone. It's beautiful. Verse 8, and again he stooped down and wrote in the ground. Verse 9, and they which heard it, heard it. Oh, this is precious to me. How important is the word heard to you? After I've read so much stuff that it's flowing out of my ears about what Jesus wrote, I was glad that the King James Bible said, and they which heard it. You don't hear a finger writing on the ground. You hear what Jesus said when he stood up, writing on both sides of it, but he said, let him that is without sin cast the first stone. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience. There's a collective noun. Did they all have one conscience? That's a collective noun. Sometimes you have a singular for the plural in the Bible. Went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone in the woman standing in the midst. They all disappeared. Jesus made it easy for them. He did. He that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And he put his head down again and wrote on the ground so that they could sneak out without him seeing them. And the oldest one, and because the older we get, if we haven't totally violated our consciences, the more we know and our consciences speak a little more informed to us and there's not raging hormones in us, and so a conscience can speak better for, in an old man than in a young man. And so beginning at the oldest, working their way down, they all disappeared. And there's just the woman, Jesus, the apostles, and the crowd that was there to hear him teach them the word of God. Verse 10. When Jesus had lifted up himself, this is the second time he lifts himself up from writing and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, first time he's addressed her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? I've had my head down. What happened to them? Hath no man condemned thee? 
Verse 11, she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Without accusers, there was no crime because there were no witnesses. Everything had to be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. There were no witnesses. They were all gone. So Jesus asked, Where are these thine accusers? Well, they're no longer these. They're those, meaning that they're distant because they've left that particular setting. Hath no man condemned thee? You mean there's no one here to condemn you for what you did? No man, Lord. Neither do I condemn thee. Neither do I condemn thee. Jesus did not start a lax approach to adultery or any sexual sin, but the opposite. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount included lustful thoughts and abuse of divorce court in order to get another wife. Do you remember all that? This is the same Lord Jesus Christ. When he said, neither do I condemn thee, I do not condemn thee officially. I do not condemn thee as a judge of Israel. I do not condemn thee under Moses' law because I have no witnesses. I have no grounds to condemn you on a legal basis at all. But go and sin no more. And in those words, there is a condemnation that what you did was sin and you shouldn't do any more of it. Do you know how this has been abused? This passage has been abused. Neither do I condemn thee. So some pastor gets his courage up to bring church judgment to his church. And he lays out the case, he lays out the Bible, and some member stands up, raises their hand. Unbelievable. Unbelievable what ministers go through. I have a question. Didn't Jesus say, let him that is without sin cast the first stone? Meaning, to that person, since we're all sinners, we should just forgive sister for her adultery. Then, when the pastor tries to answer that one, we get this again. On the other side of the assembly. And this time, the person wants to ask, didn't Jesus say, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Legally. He that is without sin, legally, in this particular matter of charging a woman with a capital crime, let him cast the first stone. That is all that is intended by the words. If you take the words any farther, you start down a path that has no end except heresy. And the words, neither do I condemn thee, are only to be understood judiciously as a judge of Israel in the court of Moses, which he had no right to be in, and there were no witnesses. I can't condemn you. I've said it, do you understand? And I yes, I, yes, I feel sorry for pastors. And so do you know that most churches don't have church discipline because of this? And this is attached to something that is empty here. And that is why I teach you. There is no basis in John chapter 8. Should a child stand up the next time you try to discipline them at home and say to you, Dad, he that is without sin, let him give me the first stripe. How many of you parents are going to buy into that one? It doesn't affect any sphere of authority except this sphere of authority. And this sphere of authority was Moses' seat and there wasn't anyone there to do it. He, he told them to do it. If you know what Moses said to do, do it. And the first person, the first stone, has to be a righteous witness. And they got condemned. They knew that law. They could have quoted you that thing backwards and frontwards. 
about how that was supposed to be practiced. They were waiting for Jesus to say, turn it over to Rome. Crowd, we've got ourselves a case to practice holy righteousness. Stoner. They were waiting for some response like that. They were not waiting for, he that is without sin and meets all the other criteria of Moses' law, let him pick up the first stone and get to it. Pastor, do you have to mock other preachers and their poor church members raising their hands? You want to ask me? Yes, I have to. Those are foolish and unlearned questions. You don't take something out of its context and throw it at a pastor who's got his courage up to try to practice New Testament apostolic religion for the first time in his ministry, and then you, you neuter him, and he spends the rest of his life a begging coward in the pulpit. That is why when we have exclusions, you are told so far in advance and you're given opportunities to ask me anything you want in private, you're not going to disrupt some assembly that we have and pop, up, pop, pop off with something from John chapter 8. Amen. Thank you, Lord. I didn't want to get off track. Neither do I condemn thee. Those scribes that altered manuscripts to get rid of this passage out of chauvinistic fear were very wrong. Jesus said, go and sin no more. He identified her as a sinner, that she had sinned and she shouldn't do any more of it. But he could not condemn her under Moses' provisions because there weren't witnesses and he wasn't a judge for Moses. Turn to Romans chapter 8. We're leaving John chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to trust the Lord completely in the, in the rearrangement of the second service because it's being rearranged right now, as you can tell by the clock. I want you to think about the Lord's Supper that we're coming to. We don't know anything about that woman. It's all speculation that she was a believer. We can't speculate that she ended up a believer. We can't speculate that she ended up in Spain. We don't believe any of that because it's not in the Word of God. Every Word of God is pure, and if we were to add to it, He's going to reprove us and we're going to be liars. But I can share this with you, and this is now the third time. The Lord Jesus Christ is so full of glorious wisdom and understanding and knowledge and discretion and prudence. He was able to take a very, very difficult and complex situation and free that woman with one sentence. And just stoop. All he did was stoop down and right in the ground and he got rid of them all. And they came thinking that they had a case that he could not get out of. But he got out of it with the words, He that is without sin, let him first cast a stone at her. He's beautiful. Yes, amen. He delivered her on the grounds of the legal system of Moses' religion. He delivers us on the legal grounds of God's holy system in heaven the Old Testament only being a shadowy, obscure, pitiful, beggarly picture of it. Are you with me? If he could deliver that woman so easily, so quickly, so freely, when she was caught in the very act, think about their terminology, because that's how men think, we got her in the very act. We caught her red-handed. He had her delivered by one sentence, with them confirming that he was right and they were wrong, they all left. There wasn't a single man standing there to condemn her. 
There, there were no charges laid against her. Where are these thine accusers? Is there no man to condemn thee? No man, Lord. Neither do I condemn thee. Now, if Jesus could do such a wonderful job being caught red-handed with just the legal structure of Moses' system, how about the legal structure of God's system when God is his Father and he is the Son sent to fulfill that system? Do you think he's going to be able to save us? He's going to save us on these grounds right here. Listen, three verses. Romans 8, verse 32. Romans 8, 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If God did not spare Jesus Christ, but delivered him up to the Romans and the Jews to crucify him for us, how shall he not? There is no logical, there is no theological, there is no soteriological, there is no legal basis in heaven by which we can be condemned, but we shall receive every gift of eternal life and everything else attached to it, because how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? We get everything necessary for eternal life. We get everything necessary for godliness and life in this world. We get adoption. We get justification, reconciliation, propitiation, the ransom of our sins, the redemption of our souls, eternal life and eternal inheritance, the sons of God forever. Amen. Because of the death of his son, he, he did not spare his son. That is not sparing your son. His shed blood and his broken body is not sparing his son. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things because we're joint heirs with Jesus Christ? Look at verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? What's the answer to that question? That's a rhetorical question. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? No one can lay anything to the charge of God's elect. Where are these thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Oh, do you love that, Brother Joshua? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? No one. It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? No one can condemn. Verse 34, It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. With a little bit of reading, we can go back into Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and find out the reasoning that Jesus used that condemned them with one sentence in their consciences by which they walked out and left that woman free. By reading the New Testament scriptures of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we can read about God sending His only begotten Son to die for us on the cross of Calvary as a substitute for us. And not only did He die on the cross, as verse 34 wants to point out, but yea, rather, He is ascended up into heaven, is at the right hand of God, and will be an intercessor for us there. And if, and if, 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 there were to be any accuser that were to arise up to accuse us, and even if it's God ourselves from the books of our works, Jesus will be there to deliver us on the grounds of his death for our souls. There is not a chance you can be lost. If that woman caught red-handed was delivered by the legal system of Moses, what about the divine system of God's grace that is in Christ Jesus of the New Testament? Amen. And he's alive. Amen. 
to be there for us as an intercessor. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? No one. It is God that justifieth. We have no accusers. The accuser of the brethren has been cast down since Jesus got to heaven because heaven isn't big enough for Jesus and Satan. Revelation chapter 12. And then the song of salvation was sung in that wonderful passage of Scripture. This is the word of the Lord. This is the gospel of the New Testament. I have worried and fretted about John chapter 8 leading up to the Lord's Supper. And I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. He gave me something very special. At least it was to me. Where are these thine accusers? Is there is no man here to condemn you? No man, Lord. And guess what? As I come to the Lord's Supper, there's no one to accuse me. Not even the devil himself. He's thrown it. Do you know what the devil has on me? Oh, forget that. Do you know what the devil has on you? He has it all. But he's not allowed in heaven. And Jesus is there to say, I paid for every single one of those. And if you're thinking to yourself before I sit down and we sing a song, one song before the Lord's Supper. If you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm glad I'm not like that woman and never committed adultery. Let me remind you that there's actual adultery when she was caught in the very act. There's watching adultery on television and enjoying it. Do you want a verse? Romans chapter 1 and verse 32. Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. If you've ever had a friend that's an adulterer or an adulteress, if you've watched on television and enjoyed it, you're guilty of Romans 1.32. You're guilty of Matthew chapter 5 and verse 28, Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 24, Job chapter 31 and verse 1. If you've lusted after a woman in your thoughts, if you have ever used the divorce courts to get a woman, another woman in your life, un, in an ungodly way, you're guilty of adultery. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19. If you've had a fantasy about a woman, if you've looked at porn and lusted after a woman that is other than your wife, you're guilty of adultery in the seventh commandment. And then if you've ever befriended the world and you've minded earthly things, you're guilty of a far worse type of adultery, spiritual adultery. It's referred to over 50 times in the Bible of whoring after other gods and whoring after the things of this world. And it, but it is said in James chapter 4, just in these gentle words, he that is a friend of the world is the enemy of God, ye adulterers and adulteresses. Right. Amen. Now, since we're all guilty adulterers, are you thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ being your intercessor? Amen. He ever liveth to plead his death for us. And I hope you love him, and I hope you love him from John chapter 8. And I hope you can see that with the Apostle Paul, we have a whole nother level of the grace of God revealed to us that is not really in John 8, 1 through 11. Jesus didn't have compassion on the woman. Jesus got rid of her accusers because they were trying to trap him by appealing to the actual requirements of Moses' legal system. But God has a different relationship with you and me. Amen. God has set his love upon us, and Jesus loved us, and it's the great example of his love to come and die for us and all the sins that we're guilty of.